Has Operation Yew Tree stung Pudsy Bear? Answer me this, answer me this. What did Peter Simon get up to after Double Dare? Answer me this, answer me this. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Listeners, if Ollie Man sounds A, distracted, B, happier than you've ever heard him, it's because his cat is in his lap. And that is because we are recording at his new house in the countryside of Hertfordshire. Yeah, he lives in a house, a fairly small to average size house in the country. Coco, do you want to speak into the mic? Oh, here we go. No, she doesn't, Ollie, because no. she's a cat. She's not a podcaster. She <laughs> it would is be a so pet weird if cat. she did want to do that. Yeah, God, imagine if this was her first words. It's like, <laughs> good afternoon, listeners. Hello. If that happened, then we'd be capturing that moment on tape, and that would be a historic moment in it world would. development. By the way, if you can hear a bell ringing in the background, it's again, Tinkerbell. <laughs> again, that is the cat. Uh, she wears a bell. Yeah, so, as does uh, Martin the Salman. Yeah, I think Coco's uh, drucking to replace me, isn't she? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... She she often has more relevant things to say. So, uh, yes, we are in my house. Yes, we are. It's lovely, Ollie, well done. And we've had a day in the country, haven't we? We have. We've had the best day in the country because we went to the dinosaur-themed mini-golf. Which is a pretty good one. The dinosaur-theming is not incorporated into each hole but it'd be nice wouldn't it if you were putting into the dinosaur's mouth and then it shot out a golf ball at that the would be nice. yeah yeah but uh last week we were talking about something almost as exotic as dinosaur themed mini golf indeed we were talking about a place almost as exotic as south hertfordshire we were talking about birmingham oh yes and we asked you for your underwhelming birmingham facts and you supplied you delightful people laurie as birmingham does because it is an industrial center <laughs> ah yes um laurie says the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery is the 20th most visited museum in the UK. That is an underwhelming fact. Underwhelming. I haven't corroborated any of these facts, by the way. But also, again, it's Britain's second city, so it ought to have some museums that people go to. 20th is not that good a showing. That's true, although it's not so bad that it is in itself a whelming fact. Mm. If it was the 40th most visited, you'd be like, what's going on? Birmingham is London is the second city to London. Yeah. should have. But actually 20th, you're like, oh, yeah, well... It's not performing as well as you'd expect. No. It's also not extraordinary no. failure. You wouldn't go to Birmingham for the museums. No. But you it, might go to them once you're in Birmingham. This is why it is an underwhelming fact. True that. So well done, Laurie. Uh, Lizzie got in touch uh, via Twitter, in fact, at uh, Helen and Ollie, if you would like to write to us there. With your own underwhelming Birmingham facts. Uh, she says... Twitter was invented in Birmingham. <laughs> she says, at the Pen Museum in Brum, I learnt over 95% of pen nibs in the world in the 19th century were made in Birmingham. Wow, 95%. Yeah. That is good. Well, she Shakespeare said, is from the Birmingham area, of course. It's a, it's a pretty broad definition of the Birmingham area, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Stratford's not far from Birmingham. It's, it's also no. not near Birmingham. Yeah. I mean, Paris isn't far from Birmingham, really, <laughs> a global perspective. Chris from March, Helen Polly answered me this. Is it possible to put your hand in, like, uh, fish batter and put your hand in a deep fat fryer without giving yourself serious injury? I'm going to hazard a guess that. That would hurt a lot. You, you probably would lose your hand. Uh, I, I think what Chris is suggesting here is that the batter would provide some form of protection it, against the oil. It would stop your hand from drying out during cooking, sure. <laughs> a bit nice and succulent. But you know when they put, say, a bit of raw fish or chicken in mm. batter in oil, it does cook through. So, yes, this, this would hurt, Chris. 
however, it's assuming that you are not Can Try Chan from Chiang Mai. No. The, uh, the man who holds the Guinness World Record for picking 20 pieces of fried chicken out of 480 oh. degrees centigrade boiling fat in oh. one minute. <laughs> Did he have any protective batter on With his hand? his bare hands. Oh. Bare hands. The, I know you don't read mail online on principle, Helen. I don't. But do just I... to give you a glimpse into what you're missing, mm-hmm. this had one of my favourite sentences in any mail online article. He discovered his rare talent when a nearby squirrel dropped a mango into his chicken <laughs> pot. <laughs> what? He sells chicken, fried chicken, from a roadside stall in Chiang Mai. Oh, right. He was cooking and a squirrel eating a mango, a common thing in Thailand, I suppose, um, dropped the mango from a height into his boiling fat and it landed all up his body and all over his hands. All of his co-workers thought he'd have to go to hospital. They thought he'd be Mm -hmm. having a week off. You know, he wouldn't be back at his roadside store the next day. And yet there he was because he went home, woke up and he hadn't been burned. And he's got some sort of weird, obviously some odd genetic kind of indemnity. How is that possible even? Is his his skin made out of asbestos or barber jackets or something? None of the articles that I've read about him, they actually explained biologically what's happening, which would be really interesting, wouldn't it? But he's obviously Mm. got something Mm. special in his skin makeup that means that he doesn't burn. So weird. Like uh, proteins start to denature at 47 degrees. Well, I, 480 uh, degrees, he would just be. There would, he would physically be cooking his hands, never, well, whether he felt it or not. I'm not making it out, Martin. There are videos of this on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and people watch them for pleasure? Well, whilst we talk about disturbing YouTube videos, uh, there's a question about YouTube from Yay! Fiona. Uh, she says, uh, I've become addicted to watching YouTube channels aimed at young women like myself dedicated to clothes, e.g. outfit of the day, makeup tutorials and product reviews. Righto. This is what happens when they close the youth centres, isn't it, Helen? Yeah. Ugh. Have to look at that video of that girl curling her hair and then a bit of it burns off. Oh, I've seen that loads. That's that is good. really funny. Yeah. That is still funny. That's uh, not how to do it. <laughs> I now have a burning desire to become a YouTube blogger as well. Uh, are they still called YouTube bloggers? I thought it was vloggers anyway. Yeah, there was, a t- there was a time where they were really trying to get vlogger off the isn't ground. Isn't it vlog- vlogcasting? <laughs> awful word. It is awful, isn't it? I suppose video maker's probably better though, actually. Yeah, even YouTuber. YouTuber, yeah, yeah. yeah. Video dreamer. Anyway, um, my opinions are valid, aren't they, says Fiona? Yes, don't they know. are. No. Don't know how dangerous you are. No. Well, the, the point is they're as valid as most yes. other people who have taken the step of making videos. Fair sure. enough. Um, I would happily test out new products, she continues, and dress up for strangers like myself. Well, that's very altruistic of you. <laughs> oh, I'll put some clothes on. Uh, the only problem is I'm not really that makeup savvy. Got all the makings of a great comedy YouTube channel here. Yeah. Uh, hence my need to watch tutorials online in the first place. Right. So Helen, answer me this: Should I do it? If you're not that good at makeup, firstly, Fiona, don't do makeup tutorials unless you're really, really bad, because then it will be funny and people will watch them. But if you're just average or learning, why would people watch that? They She's want probably ex- not really, really bad because anyone no. who's really, really bad, like the really, really bad singers on The X Factor, yeah. don't have the self-awareness to know no. they're really, really bad because usually they've got a screw loose. Yeah, but what you need either is expertise or fail. And mm. anything in between is not worth having. So what are you good at, Fiona, that you could legitimately show people? Try try some stuff out. I think I think whatever you do, keep the videos brief. Yes, yeah. three yes. to five minutes max. I think for a makeup or hair or clothes thing, probably two minutes will suffice. I think don't do an introduction. I no. think until you've got a fan base, it's indulgent to do an introduction. Yeah. Because people have found that video if they found it at all, because they're searching glittery curly tongue or whatever. Yeah. And then they want to see you using that glittery curly tongue. 
What yeah. they don't want is like a minute of you saying, hey guys, been a month since I last did a video. I know you're all wondering. They don't yeah. care because it's been two years since you made it. And uh, anyway, I'm going on holiday next summer. Really looking forward to that. But in the meantime, just thought I'd do a video and I'm calling this video Glittery Curly Tongs. You're watching thinking, I fucking know that because I yeah. searched for it and it's called that. Oh, you talk, that's the Mark Maron technique. He's enormously successful. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's what I mean. It's all right once people know who you are. You can, for example, do an episode in which the first two minutes you self-indulgently recount your day and talk about your house in the country. But what you can't do <laughs> is take the audience for granted unless you know that they're still going to be there after that two minutes that's all i'm saying yeah yeah but let us know what you choose fiona and uh, then send us a link to the videos but i think i think go a bit further afield than you're currently imagining i suppose with makeup tutorials it's a case of doing something that other people aren't doing isn't yes. it and so really what is there because you don't really i'm imagining well, want to do something very outre unless that's very you yesterday on oxford street i saw a black guy in white face and I thought, that's unusual. That is unusual. Yeah. What was he doing? So I think he was advertising on those golf sale things. I can't decide whether those golf sale sign guys, mm. whether that's a good low minimum wage job or a bad one. It's bad mm. because it's sort of offensive to your own sense of self-worth that you're yeah. wearing a big sign. You could be replaced by a pillar <laughs> yeah. wearing a big sign. Exactly. But it's good in that... Gets you outside, meeting people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, it's good people watching. My friend, when I was a kid, used to walk up to those guys and go, excuse me, do you know where there's a golf sale on near here? <laughs> Hilarious. What did they, what did they, how did they respond? They didn't speak English, so they uh, just... Yeah. Well, they pretended they didn't because they couldn't be bothered to dignify that with a response yeah. for the 200th time that day. Possibly. If you've got a question... Email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Now, it's been a big week, obviously. We've all been looking at the photos of the longest baby in the world. <laughs> <laughs> or so it appears because he's wearing a dress. Hide his four-foot legs. <laughs> um, I'm talking, of course, about Prince George. Corpse bride. And his christening, mm -hmm. um, which is a joyous celebration for the whole country, the indoctrination of a baby into a state religion. Do you know what? I just think it's so wonderful that so many people still think that the divine right of kings is worth celebrating. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean I don't. Why are you all so stupid? And accordingly, we have a question of christenings from Dave, uh, who says... My mum had a close girlfriend from her childhood growing up in Old Crawley Town to accept the job of being my godmother. I'm 43 now and cannot remember seeing her nor getting any birthday cards from her since I was a baby. Godmother fail. That is a fail, isn't it? Yeah, at least, a, at least a card with a £10 note in it. You, do you think that's the minimum obligation? Because actually, financially, that's quite a commitment over someone's life, isn't it? Yeah, but you stop when they're 18. Oh, okay. When they're 18, you give them 100 quid and that's effectively a buyout. I was going to say, because otherwise she'd be £430 down by this stage. Yeah. <laughs> you think about it like that, it's quite a big investment, isn't it, to be a godmother? It is an imposition. Fortunately, I only need to Google Prince William to see her and He's know what He's a man! She... <laughs> what are you talking about? You'll, he'll explain. Oh. Uh, and discover what she's been up to, as she is none... <laughs> As she is none other than Jessica Webb. Who who's is... That? No who's, idea. who's Jessica Webb? Is that Prince William when he wears uh, a dress? <laughs> this is quite interesting, actually. Jessica Webb is Prince William's nanny. Oh! Um, oh, so she was busy failing Dave because she was bringing up the royals. Yeah. Although, doesn't explain why she slacked him off 
in all of the years before Prince William was born, because Prince William is, what, early 30s? So she could have been around for at least Dave's first 10 years. That's right, yeah. Well, obviously, she had a lot of networking to do to get mm. into the circles to become Prince William's nanny. You don't just get that by applying mm. to an agency, do you? Apparently, she's the one who used to scoop up William when Charles and Di were shouting at each other. Mm. Uh, and that's why William has such affection for her that he called her back to be... George's nanny, even though she's now 71. Anyway, Dave says, beautifully ironic this, don't you think? Yes. A little too <laughs> ironic. <laughs> um, uh, he says, Helen, answer me this. I know the concept and reasoning behind parents wanting stand-ins should anything happen to them, but where did godparent come from? And is it only a Christian, Western, cultural idea? Uh, I think it is dominantly Christian because, for instance, in Judaism, we don't have them. And I think it's because the family obligation is understood to be so strong. You don't need to nominate people. You know, Jewish family is really mm. the ties that bind are considered very strong. That's true. But you could say that, couldn't you, about a lot of other ethnic communities. And actually, I mean, when godparents came about, nonetheless, we were still at a time where people traditionally lived closer to their families than they do now. So it's not as if that wasn't inevitable anyway. People had large families. It's still an honorary thing, isn't it? Well, godparents came about in the very early days of Christianity, so 200 or so AD. And the idea was that these were people that were not your parents. In some ways, they were superior to your parents because they were in charge of your spiritual education. Mm. And their existence would ensure that that continued even if your parents died. But yeah, it was considered a really, really important role. So the the primary objective was the spiritual enlightenment. Yes, but then actually it did become quite strategic because like marriages, you were were forging bonds with powerful Mm. and influential people. And um, (laughs) I read about that in, in Italy... There was a child in um, the 15th century that had three godmothers and 22 godfathers. Now, that is silly. I know that you're trying to get as much out of this child as possible How politically. How much spiritual but enlightenment do you need? And imagine getting 22 pewter tankards. <laughs> Would you feel comfortable being asked to be a godmother now because you're not Christian and you I'm an don't atheist. believe in God? I, but on the other yeah. hand, it's an honorary thing. And if the parents asked you, they probably weren't taking the God thing that seriously either. And they were bestowing it on you just as an honour. I would be comfortable with being a secular godparent, which I call sparent, but I could not, in conscience, stand up in a church and agree to the things you have to agree to in the ceremony. Right, but then... I'd be struck by lightning. Yeah, but then... I mean, you call it sparent, yeah. but they call it godparent. Are you comfortable with that? Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> I think as long as they know what they're getting. Yeah, I think anyone who elected me for that, and uh, no one has thus far, Yeah, I think they would know my position on matters religious. Martin, would you be a godfather? Yeah, I quite like the idea, actually. Horse's head in the bed. Yeah, I was just going to say, what you meant to say was, yeah, I quite like the idea, actually. (laughs) Come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. (laughs) Well, that was all very enlightening. We have yet another question about the royal family on the phone line. Hi, this is Roman Mars from East Bay of California. Well, some of you are going to be very excited to hear the mellifluous tones of our fellow podcaster, Roman Mars. Celebrity pod call. Of uh, 99% invisible. Uh, someone sent me a picture of a uh, clock radio in a broadcast studio with a series of lights on the bottom. Uh, there was red, green, and yellow, which all of which I can't surmise. But there's also this mysterious white indicator bulb, and the photographer told me that she was told that this light was only illuminated when a member of the royal family has died. And this is a standard feature in British radio stations. So Helen and Ollie, answer me this. 
Is this true? And if so, I want to know everything about the royal family death light. Yes, Roman, this light definitely does exist. Does it? Yes. Oh, oh. And I can speak from experience on this because only two weeks ago, I was covering the JVS show mid-mornings on BBC Three Counties Radio. And did you have to get trained for what to do in the event of a royal death? Well, no, but it's so um, endemic to the culture of BBC Radio that there are posters on the wall informing you what to do. You don't need oh. to be trained. But I've never seen that in a BBC studio that I've been in. Is this a specific BBC Three Counties? Well, I think it might be that the studios at Three Counties, uh, you know, perfectly functional as they are yep. for making uh, great quality local radio, yes. are very old. Um, they were built in something like 1970. Yeah. So I think possibly the new studios at the BBC, they'll still have this light, by the way. Really? But to be honest, it's more relevant nowadays for that light to be in the producer's gallery Good than to be point. in the sight of the presenter. Yes. Um, but back in the day, the presenter and the producer would be in the same room or perhaps the presenter would be running their own sliders, you know, using their own board, and therefore they'd need to know uh, when the light was flashing. But there are a lot of lights in the studio, but on the clock, I think, the, the three lights that are on the actual clock are the ones that tell you that your mic is live, that your mic's about to go live, mm. or that your mic's not live, which means you're free to slug people off. The, the, all I know is there's a light, and I said to the producer, is that the light that flashes when the royal family die? And he said yes. And I looked at the notice board in the corridor, oh, and yes. this is what it says. Uh -huh. In the event of a Category 1 death... <laughs> Right? And then it specifies what the category one death is. Uh, the Queen, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, or Prince William. That's it. So it doesn't... Not even Harry. Doesn't apply to Harry, doesn't apply to Kate Middleton. It will apply to the baby now, they just haven't updated it. Yes, I think that's probably true. But it's it's got to be an heir or the... Uh, Directly direct in line to the throne. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, doesn't apply to Camilla. Uh, it says here, if any one of them dies, the rats machine... Rats! And I think that stands for, like, the royal... Royal apocalypse uh, terror <laughs> syndrome. Yeah. So, no, but I think it probably is royal announcement something system the rats machine under the tv in the newsroom will sound an alarm mm -hmm. there will also be a flash on enps and that's the um the software that all the bbc radio stations use okay. to sort of do their output uh -huh. and then it says do not announce anything on air you're supposed to call the editor of the station and then it doesn't say what happens next but my understanding is she then calls all the other local radio stations and they simultaneously switch to some form of output which then informs soberly to the country that the Queen has, or whoever has died. And the reason for that, basically, is what they don't want is the drive time presenter on BBC Suffolk to say, oh, seeing on Twitter, hashtag Queen dead. What's that about? Mm. So any inkling of that, and that you get a formal BBC announcement just like in the old days. Well, my friend Maria, who has uh, been a radio producer for many years, told me that what happens when the Queen dies, or presumably the other Category 1s, is that all of the BBC stations switch to Radio 4. Oh, but, it's Radio 4, is it? Yeah, but the speed of it varies on, on the uh, criticalness of the death. So I think for the Queen, Radio 1 would interrupt an Ellie Goulding song. Yes. But I think for wow. Prince Philip, they'd wait till the end of the song and then do it. And, That's a good level of detail. Yeah, but I don't know who's in Radio 4 at the time, because sometimes it's a pre-record. I think probably the newsreader would be kept on hand at that point just to say things until... Mm until they had a more substantial amount of information and a plan in place. I'm really surprised that Radio 1 would switch to Radio 4. I can believe that all nope. the local stations would. Well, you remember when Princess Diana died, and I don't know what happened on the day because I wasn't listening to Radio 1. But Radio but 1 just became like magic, lift music, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, it was unbearable. Mm. They, so for two weeks, pretty much, until her funeral, they just played one by U2, Candle, Candle in the Wind, wind yeah. and, and then instrumentals. And yeah. it was hideous. And I, I, 
I just thought if you're looking to mourn Princess Diana, this probably isn't the radio station you would go to to do it. So you, you could up the output a bit. Yes, I think it's understandable on the day of the death and the day of the funeral mm. that you don't play lively music. And but even I don't see why you have to interrupt normal programming. Not not to that level of shitness. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens this time round, though, actually, because... She's never going to die. She's never going to die. <laughs> I suspect that all the different BBC-branded stations have got playlists ready that reflect yeah. their musical taste. So, like, Six Music, what are they going to play? What are Asian Network going to play when Prince Philip dies? <laughs> <laughs> At my village fate, my hotcakes sell like hotcakes. I want to expand my business beyond the school gates. So I make so much money, my wallet would fill a lake. Or a reservoir would do. With Squarespace.com, you can build an e commerce website. Track your hotcake orders and take safe payments through Stripe. Your hotcakes are so hot, they'll set the internet alive. Selling like hotcakes, do you see? Yes, indeed. Big thanks to Squarespace.com for sponsoring this episode. Thank you, Squarespace. Thank you, Squarespace. Yeah, you've, you've kept Martin the Salman in chocolate buttons today. Mm. Um, and th- yeah, how are you getting on with those? I've never seen such selfishness. I mean, the man's opened a whole packet of chocolate buttons. He hasn't even offered me one. Now he's, now he's eaten them. You're on a, a big diet. Bowl of chocolate You're buttons. on a diet. I, I oh, so don't... it's out of consideration for me. It's, it's still polite, polite it's, isn't it? It's, it's to polite offer. to offer and test Ollie's willpower, exactly. Martin. It's, it's incredibly rude to, to offer chocolate buttons to a, a big fat man. Martin, <laughs> it's incredibly terrible. rude to call anyone a big fat man. And it would be man. almost as rude to, to, to give off a chocolate button to someone looking as slim as you are, mm. following your recent diet. And, Amazing last minute save. And also, <laughs> Martin's sitting there with your cat Coco, bold as brass. Yeah, I know. Corrupting her. I know, she should be on my room. lap, damn it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yes, what were we saying? Apart here. Um, Squarespace, yes, though. Squarespace, right, yeah. Squarespace do this thing we haven't talked about before. It's called Squarespace Commerce. What does that do? Uh, you can sell stuff. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a T-shirt for your band. Yes. And you can do that on the same site, the same platform that you are selling, for example, the digital download of your band's album. And all on the same platform as where you're taking donations to your band. It's a department store rather than a mall with lots of different stores. Exactly. Uh, so you can have your two weeks of fun playing around with Squarespace and its commercial possibilities. But if you want to keep the site that you built, then just enter the code answer 10. That's right, for 10% off. 10 handsome percent. Anyway, here is a question about computing from Carl, who says... Cast your minds back to 1999 and all the hype surrounding the turn of the century, but more importantly, my dad. There was no hype surrounding your dad, Carl. I remember the millennium. <laughs> and you? yeah, I remember all those shows going, Carl's dad, Carl's dad, Carl's dad. <laughs> and then afterwards, all those clip shows going, oh, do you remember Carl's dad? Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> uh, uh, Carl says, my dad was obsessed about the millennium bug. What a queer man. He was convinced that the world was going to end. It wasn't a bug like Ebola that had gone airborne. It was... No, but there was a lot of hype, wasn't there? He probably wasn't alone in yeah. thinking this. Well, the millennium was rubbish and it was just one of the many things that were rubbish about it. Uh, he stocked the house full of supplies, like Brendan Fraser's parents in Blast from the Past. Oh, that was a great film. Then, when that wasn't good enough, he booked us out of school for two months and we moved to Thailand no. where we lived in a hut away from technology. Wow. That is super paranoid. Actually, that... With yeah. silver foil hats on. Carl says, Ollie, answer me this... Why did everyone go so mental? Was there a real threat or is my dad bonkers? Well, I think we all know the answer to the last question (laughs) is one we're going to internalise. But let me answer the first two. Um, 
Why did everyone go so mental and was there a real threat? Mm. Everyone went so mental because of the media coverage. And I would include international governments in this, which is what was so extraordinary about this. International governments were doing nothing about the Millennium Bug until there was media coverage about it. And then we actually had a Millennium Bug minister in this country who was in charge of it. (laughs) Who was that? And I don't know. Some 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 poor Labour right? Um, Obviously, it wasn't, you know, a senior minister. It wasn't a secretary of state. But there was someone who was put in charge of it. And that was because of the media hype. Now, for listeners that are young enough to not even remember what the Millennium Bug was, um, it was the concern that when the turn of the millennium happened... None of the technological devices were prepared for it. uh, Which actually was less concerning in 1999, actually, than it would be today. Because now there are far more. There are far more, and everything really is linked up to each other. There was a theory that computers wouldn't be able to cope with the figures 99, as in 1999, turning to 00, because they'd think it was like BC, yeah. if it went to zero, zero. <laughs> a lot of the really old computers that were built, built in the 60s and 70s didn't think they'd be still stop operating in 30 or 40 years' time. Correct. And those were the computers that operated things like nuclear power stations, hydroelectric jet dams. Well, that was the perceived threat. But then the question is, to, was there a real threat? I mean, of course, as, we, as it turned out, no, there wasn't a real threat. And that wasn't because people had Millennium Bug ministers. I think we had to reset the clock on our video. Um, <laughs> exactly. It was a terrible day. Uh, it's because, as it turned out, the threat that Martin describes only ever really applied to computers that had embedded clocks. And actually, yeah. that really was only Windows desktops. And actually, the kind of computers you're describing that run infrastructure weren't Windows desktops anyway. They were bespoke-designed computing things. Um, And it also, out of that subset of computers, only actually applied to computers that measured the date using two figures rather than four. Because any computer that used 2000 rather than 00 would understand what it was anyway. And this whole thing, this whole myth, really, apparently seemed to spring up from one computer engineer in Toronto called Peter de Yaga. Cheeky, cheeky Peter Diago. (laughs) Who worked in this field uh, of, I guess, preventative computer meltdowns. This was his area of study. And he spoke to a paper in Toronto about the potential risk in the future. He didn't say he knew what was going to happen because he didn't. No scientist did. He just said, I think there's a story here. You know, the numbers are going to go to zero and we don't know what's going to happen. And that didn't really fly as a story. It got some coverage in his paper in Toronto. It was only when... He started upping the ante in other interviews. You know, people read that article and then asked him about it. And he was like, well, what could happen is all of the prison doors that are operated by computer could open spontaneously. (laughs) And what could happen is all the power plants could explode. He was just speaking off the cuff. He was just saying these are things that could happen. But he never actually said it would. And no one knew. No one knew whether it would or wouldn't happen, including the experts, so-called, who popped up selling books and videos off the back of this, telling you how to safeguard yourself against the Millennium Bug. Wait, but that's... Isn't that really easy to test those bugs? You just fake, you know, artificially set your computer clock to the uh, 31st of December 1999 and wait for it to roll over and see, does the operating system crash? What parts of the operating system crash? This is like bug testing 101. The weird thing was... um, there were already computers that were dealing with dates into 2000. For example, computers that were people booking holidays or insurance policies. Right. Mm. And so they knew that computers co- could cope with 2000. It's a story though, isn't it? And, it and, and people love the story. I suppose also if it had happened and everything had gone to shit, then they would have looked remiss for not having reported it. Not having reported that, of course, it could happen. Yes. But the problem is... The tone was a bit too a hysterical. Bit, a bit much. All of these stories, I would have rather have gone to Thailand for two months and lived in the hut than had to sit <laughs> through them. Yeah, that's true. It was very tedious. And also the Millennium, like Millennium Eve, I, just, I, I didn't have that good a time. 
Did I was, you? I was in St. Lucia. It was brilliant. Oh, all right. I was in Bristol. So <laughs> how different we are. What happened in Bristol okay. in Millennium Eve? We were watching out the window as a guy got a blowjob in a shop doorway while a procession walked past. Sounds amazing. Also had a big furry hat on. And so when I was walking around in the street, uh, people coming up going, hello, Boris Yeltsin. <laughs> <laughs> if you got a question, answer me this podcast to googlemail.com. But you haven't got a scoop, answer me this podcast to googlemail.com. that jingle was by listener gilbert thanks very much for that gilbert it's like um it's a bit beach boysy isn't it was well, it very much like late period beach boys well, it's a bit like the kind of effects they put on ozzy osbourne's voice now when he tries to sing but in a beach boy style yes have you heard that new Paul McCartney song? Mercifully, no. Uh, it, that's, that's not the name that's of the song. That's not what it's called, no. That would be a good name for a uh, Paul McCartney-esque song. Yeah, it's called New. It's, it? it's okay. It sounds like a pastiche of Beatles song, so you'd expect that, really. It's not going to be new forever. But you can hear the effect on his voice. You can hear mm. that they've had to filter his voice to make it... Even I don't think he can sing anymore. No, I don't think he can. I wouldn't expect a 72-year-old to be able to sing as well mm. as he could when he was 25. The vocal cords have taken a bit of a pounding. He's used mm. them a lot. Well, I think the problem is his songs don't fit a blues style very well. Mm. We went to see Elton John at the iTunes Festival and he was a great performer. He was performer, a good voice, wasn't he? Still, he still, still sing, but he can't, yeah. he can't sing falsetto anymore. So he doesn't. He just goes, I hope you don't mind, instead of going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but Paul McCartney can't really do that because it'd be frightening if someone, hey, Jude. Tom Waits does the Beatles. Yeah. That's an album in the offing, isn't it? (laughs) Bob Dylan had it right. He's been setting people up for decades Mm. for him losing his voice. Mm. Anyway, uh, apropos of music, here is a question from Mike who says, I've been a long-time fan of the marvellous Echo and the Bunny Men. Yeah, they're all right. And also Ian McCulloch when doing his solo stuff. Several years ago, I went to see Ian at a tiny place called the Africa Centre in Covent Garden. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Have you? Yeah, they do good African food, if that's your thing. Mm. It's not really my thing, so it was okay, but, uh, you know. And was Ian McCulloch there? <laughs> not that I recall. After the show, says Mike, I went for a leak in the venue's tiny gents mm. and was pretty shocked to find myself having a wee next to Ian McCulloch. Wow. I was lost for words and mumbled only something like, great show, Ian. Hey, man, nice penis. Why did you say anything? Yeah. He just nodded and said something back like, yeah, in a way that I translated to mean, fuck off right now, I'm having a slash. So, Ollie, answer me this. How much conversation with a stranger is acceptable at a urinal? Uh, and I'd imagine I know your answer on this. I'm going to go for naught. Well, interestingly, if a stranger started talking to me about something like... How much to suck you off? No. no. Something like... How awesome you are. No. How they've never seen one so big? Stop it. <laughs> if a stranger said to me something like... Stop pissing in the sink. Stop it. <laughs> if a stranger said your urine is worryingly dark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean me as podcast rolly man either. I just mean me as a stranger talking to another stranger. Do, do you still have that life available to you? <laughs> if a stranger said to me something like, oh, I love this song, yeah. because, they, because they could hear the song coming through the wall, mm. right. I'd think... He's just trying to make pleasant conversation. Because it's an awkward situation. Yeah, yeah. and it's it, I actually wouldn't mind, but I would never initiate that conversation even at that level mm-hmm. because the whole thing's a bit weird. Yeah. And if there's then any, any element of celebrity involved as mm-hmm. well, 
and therefore you feel that you should start the conversation with, hey man, I know who you are and I like you. You are saying, I can see your penis yeah. and you're famous. Yeah. Don't do that. I, uh, I had a toilet conversation with you today. No, Did you, you didn't. I mean, this is a perfect yes, example. Yes, I was at the urinal having a wee. Ollie comes out the cubicle and I go, oh, hey, Ollie. How, how, how are things going? He washes his hands super fast and like literally runs out of the yeah. toilet. Didn't even get, he didn't even I say, didn't. yeah. That's, yeah, a mis- yeah. that's an abuse of the word literally. I didn't run. I briskly walked. It was very away. quick. Like I've never seen someone wash okay, their hands that, that quickly. Because I don't like toilet chat. No, no, I know. No. I, get, I, insta- yes. I picked up on that straight away and regret yeah. it, instantly regretted it. But actually, but that was because I was imagining if I was you, yes, I wouldn't want to be talking there with my dick out. I mean, actually, yeah. I was, in that situation, I was secure. I feel weird doing the other situation when I, I'm looking at someone whose penis is out. Yeah. Like I'm okay with my, having my penis out and chatting. Right. I do really? that all the time. We're doing that did, right now. Really? Yeah. Did, did you see Martin Twang? No, I didn't. Did no. you deliberately keep your eyes? No, as no, he possible? had his back to me. I was okay. washing my hands in the sink, and he was he did was being s- in the urinal. Did you see his stream of urine? Uh, I think I heard a bit. It's pretty strong, wasn't it? I, I didn't rate I, it. I had a really good even pressure. <laughs> Stop it. But anyway, the point is, I I I feel a bit awkward, and also, of course, worse. I I, I usually choose a cubicle. Because I sometimes mm. take a minute to get going at a urinal. But we don't know whether the Africa Centre in Covent Garden several years ago had... Had the option of a no. cubicle, sure. But what I'm saying is there are many people out there, parauresis it's called. Mm. The thing of... Shy bladder. Fe- shy bladder. Right. Now, actually, I have that very moderately. And if I wait for long enough, eventually I will pee, even if someone's talking to well, me. But if someone you're, starts you're talking to me... you're a performer. Yes. Mm. You can perform. But if someone starts talking to me, that will distract me to the point where I might not piss for mm. a minute. And then that becomes embarrassing. And then if you're thinking about it, then you can't piss. If you're I'd stand- rather not yeah. get involved. If you're standing at the Rhino next to Ian McCulloch and you're not pissing, he'll think you're just there to talk to him. <laughs> he'll think you're there to do a George Michael, won't he? That's what he'll think. Listeners, I would be really interested to know if you'd had any uh, toilet chats with a celebrity and how it went. Uh, so, do Who get- is the most famous person you've pissed next to? Mm. And for women, it could be, you know, the fact that you're in adjacent cubicles and uh, you can hear it and then you both come out and wash your hands. Yeah. I think I've pissed in the same room as Hugh Edwards once. You went and had a piss on the BBC News set. <laughs> Oh, I pissed next to Adam Buxton once. And, and on the same day, I was uh, in the toilet with Katie Mellower. That's good. Yeah, it's all right. I wouldn't have talked to her because I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have had anything to say. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, listeners, do email those uh, magnificent lavatorial anecdotes or, or just send us a question via email, phone or Skype. All of which contact details are on our website. Answermethispodcast.com Where you can also find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Well, Ollie, I have uh, very much enjoyed this field recording at your house, which is situated in fields. It's been wonderful. What a lovely novelty. <laughs> it is literally a field recording. I think if anything, Martin's too comfortable. And I think now we need to stop the recording so you can go and oust him and get your cat back. Coco is actually asleep in his arms. It's actually quite a beautiful thing. It is beautiful if it didn't hurt so much. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) listeners, we'll see you next week unless uh, Ollie has slain Martin in a love battle. Bye! Bye!